This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. As the title of my talk indicates, I'm going to be speaking to you about St. Thomas Aquinas on the question whether God exists. And to avoid keeping you all in suspense, I'll cut right to the chase. His answer is yes. But then again, I suspect you already knew that. And if I were to leave the answer there, not only would this likely be the shortest talk in the history of the Thomistic Institute, but the heart of the question would remain unanswered. Because if you pose a question such as this, it isn't simply to ask a factual point, like did the Blazers win yesterday's basketball game? Or do you like fried tomato, green fried tomatoes? Fried green tomatoes, gotta get that right. With these sorts of queries, the questioner is usually satisfied with a simple yes or no answer. By contrast, when someone asks whether God exists, something more is at stake. Something more is at stake in the asking. What the questioner really wants to know is, can you provide evidence that in fact there is a God, that God exists? And Aquinas himself recognizes this deeper point of the question, which is clear from his work, the Summa Theologiae, or the Summary of Theology, in which he offers his famous five ways of proving God's existence, five arguments to prove the existence of God, precisely in answer to the question whether God exists, which is the title of the very article in which he offers those proofs. Now, the task of providing an evidentiary answer to this question, giving us evidence of this fact, might seem challenging enough, but the task is even more challenging if we consider that the very posing of the question is kind of problematic. What exactly is it whose existence we're trying to prove? You know, Aquinas himself frequently reminds us that in this lifetime, we do not, in fact, we cannot know God's essence or nature. What does that mean? Well, let's put that in other terms. In this lifetime, we don't know what God is. So the problem arises, well, how can we even begin to try to prove the existence of a God when we don't know what it is whose existence we're trying to prove? The task seems taller than trying to find the proverbial needle in a haystack, because in that case, you at least know what it is that you're trying to find. In this case, we're trying to find something I know not what, if it exists at all, and moreover, in a haystack as big as reality itself. So what I intend to do today is examine how Aquinas thinks we can meaningfully answer the question whether God exists. And rather than look at any one of his arguments, I'll instead discuss the presuppositions and general approach that all of his arguments entail. Now, those famous five ways or famous five arguments that a lot of people encounter, I include those in the what I call the appendix. It's on the back side there. You can see my translation. And if you have questions about them during the q and I'm happy to go over those. But as I say, I'm going to be focusing in this talk on the general approach, the presuppositions. So to that end, my talk is going to have 
three parts outlined for you at the top of my handout, but we'll keep track of it here on the screen. In the first part, I'm going to consider why Aquinas thinks that even though we don't know what God is, we can meaningfully ask the question whether God exists. In the second part of my talk, I'll show how Aquinas thinks we can attempt to answer that question, again, in a meaningful way, by considering what exactly he's trying to prove in any of his arguments when he tries to prove the existence of God. And I'll provide further clarification on this point in the third part of my talk by showing what, in fact, he's not trying to prove, because there's a lot of understandable confusion. You read through these arguments, and it can seem apparent at first blush, but it might not be what he's exactly trying to do. So we want to clarify what he is doing and what he's, in fact, not doing. So with all that said, I'm going to turn to the first part of my talk here, the problematic question, whether it is, whether whatever it is we're considering exists. The earliest biographies of Aquinas recount that in his youth, he was already driven by questions concerning the divine. At the tender age of five, his parents entered him into the Benedictine monastery of Monte Cassino, pictured here as the courtyard of the abbey, where he began his studies. There, we're told, he repeatedly asked his masters the question, what is God? Now notice that for the young Thomas, whether God exists wasn't the question of concern, which makes sense if we consider that from his birth, he was steeped in a life of Christian faith. So already believing that God exists, he wanted to know more. He wanted to know precisely what it was in which he was believing. Hold on, I just lost my place. Uh, this wasn't a question, got to be clear, this wasn't a question motivated by any sort of doubt on his part, but rather was a question seeking clarification. Already at a young age, Aquinas is exemplifying this notion of Augustine, Augustinian notion of faith seeking understanding. And it's in this Augustinian spirit then that when Aquinas writes his famous Summa Theologiae, or sometimes translated Summa Theologica, later in life, he would indeed turn his attention to the question whether God exists, and in answer to it, offer his students those famous five ways of proving God's existence. But again, not in response to doubt, but rather to prove that through rational consideration, we can show that what was already accepted on faith can be established with certitude. So Aquinas is quite clear. He's saying not everything accepted on faith can be proven in this way. Not everything can be proven, as philosophers say, demonstratively. For example, the Christian doctrine of the Trinity and of the incarnation of Christ, Aquinas explains, those are what he terms articles of faith. Articles of faith are truths, that are required for the believer and they can be accepted only on faith. We can't figure them out through natural reason. But he contends that there are other truths of the faith that can in fact be proven. They're required for faith, we can believe them on faith, and yet we can also prove the truth of these positions. 
Aquinas terms this latter sort of truth a preamble to the articles of faith. So there are the articles of faith that we can only accept on faith, and then there are the preambles. You know, it's from the Latin preambula, which means to walk up to. So they're walking up to the articles that you can only accept on faith. These can be accepted on faith as well. For example, that God exists. We can accept that as a matter of faith, and yet we can also prove it. So I, I bring out for you, you don't need to look at it now, but text one on the handout where he draws this distinction. So he's telling us that the existence of God is one such truth. Now, these two questions that I've touched upon, namely, does God exist? And what is God? These are for Aquinas particular instances of fundamental types of questions asked in any scientific investigation that follows Aristotelian logical methodology. Aristotle has this work called the Posterior Analytics where he sets out the rules of logic and he presents there four fundamental scientific questions. The first of these is, is it? Meaning, whatever it is that we're talking about, does it exist? The second is, what is it? The third is, is it a fact that it is such? Does it really have this feature, have this trait, behave in this way? And the fourth is, well, why is it such? Why is it that way? To get a sense of these four questions, let's consider a simple example, the nature of a whale. I like to bring this example up to my students, namely the fact that one activity that whales engage in, maybe you're already aware of this, but maybe this is news to you, one activity that whales engage in is that they nurse their young. And that would be surprising to somebody who is unschooled on the nature of whales and think that a whale is a fish. But perhaps one day, such a person visits SeaWorld and sees firsthand, as in this example, a mother beluga whale nursing her calf. The person now knows the fact of the matter. Whales nurse their young. Notice this is an answer to the third of these four questions. Is it a fact that it is such? Is it a fact that whales engage in this activity? Then the question arises, wait, why do they do that? that? That's not an activity that's engaged in by fish. By observing the whale's behavior, the person can discern that, in fact, whales have a non-fish nature, and now they can further investigate the why. And that is the fourth of these questions. Why is it that whales are the sort of things that nurse their young? And if the person knows some basic zoology, he or she might realize that whales do so. Why? Because they're mammals. And in answering this question, the person begins to know better what it is that we are talking about. First, the person started out thinking what a whale is is a kind of fish. Now the person has clarified further, oh no, it's not a fish at all, it's a mammal. I'm walking us through these questions because notice that if you're gonna answer any of these three questions that we range through, numbers two through four, you first need to know that whales exist. How do we know that? Well, observation is certainly one avenue. People can see whales either at SeaWorld or out on the open sea itself, but the matter is more complex for the investigation of things that we 
haven't yet observed or moreover things that we can't observe. If we're going to answer the is it question, does it exist, about those sorts of things, things that we don't observe or can't observe, we need to prove that they exist. Again, the question, how? Following Aristotle, Aquinas acknowledges a conundrum here. On the one hand, it seems to prove that, it seems that if we want to prove that something exists, you need to know what it is that you're trying to prove. But on the other hand, to know what it is, it seems that you first need to know that it is to know something about it at all. I'll give you a case in point. If I were to ask you, hey, do you guys know if the Campophilus principalis exists? Odds are that you're going to reply, what's that? Unless that is, you're an ornithologist, a bird specialist, or an avid bird watcher, in which case you might know that I'm talking about the ivory-billed woodpecker, which is a species of bird considered critically endangered and likely extinct because it hasn't been observed in decades. And if you do know that much, namely that it's a bird, you know at least something about what it is that we're talking about, and then you could begin an investigation into whether it exists. And the reason you could do even that much without being a trained ornithologist is that you've encountered birds and have a general understanding of what they are. You've seen them and you've heard them. The medieval thinkers like to say there's nothing in the intellect that was not first in the senses, meaning that our senses are the gateway for our knowledge. We learn things first by sensing things. Following Aristotle, the medievals held that the mind is by nature a blank slate on which knowledge is, if you will, written through our sensory experience. And Aquinas tells us on a number of occasions that the proper object of the human intellect is the fancy Latin term quiddity, the whatness, the nature of a sensible thing. In other words, the nature of something that can be grasped by our senses. Okay, so this is all well and good for establishing what a woodpecker is and whether it exists. We're concerned here about God. What about God? For Christians, at least, and many other believers, God is considered to be an immaterial being and so can't be experienced in a sensory way. Moreover, God is traditionally identified as an infinite being that transcends the comprehension of our limited intellects. Still, we might wonder whether the descriptions I just gave, immaterial, infinite, tell us at least to a minimal degree what God is. God is the immaterial, infinite being. But in fact, Aquinas says, no, that's not getting at God's whatness. It's getting more at his what-notness, what he is not, because when we say immaterial, we're saying he's not material. If we're saying he's infinite, we're saying he's not finite or limited. So we're not getting at his nature directly. We're saying what he's not with these terms. So Aquinas maintains that in this lifetime, at least, we cannot know God's essence or nature, which again is to say we don't know what he is. And so we return to the question I raised at the outset of my talk in the context of this philosophical conundrum. I've got it illustrated for you in figure two at the bottom of page one of the handout. To know that something is, you need to know what it is. 
But to know what something is, it seems that you need to know that it is. How do we break out of this seemingly vicious circle? It would help to note first that this problem isn't unique to the investigation of things that are divine and immaterial. We find the same sort of problem arising at times in the study of nature. Consider that, according to physicists today, at least some of them, the sort of matter that we can currently observe and study seems to account for only a small fraction of the total mass energy density of the universe. The question then is what accounts for the rest? So what physicists have done is they've hypoth hypothesized a sort of matter that they call dark matter. And they call it that because so far it has been undetected. Notice the proponents of this theory don't in fact know what dark matter is but surely they at least know what they mean by the words that they're using or else they wouldn't be able to talk about it at all. Implicitly, these scientists are drawing on a distinction between what Aquinas and other scholastics refer to in Latin as the quid rei. I have it illustrated on the handout. Fancy way of just saying what the thing is out there, the sort of being, the whatness, the nature of the thing, versus the quid nominis, the whatness of the name. So we're drawing a distinction between the nature of the thing and what we mean by a word. So the quid nominis, the what we mean by the name of what physicists term dark matter, is the aforementioned stuff whose nature, or quid rei, they hope to figure out one day. So here we see a way out of the seemingly vicious circle depicted in figure two. To prove that something is, you need to know what it is, but that doesn't mean that you need to know what its nature or essence is. According to Aquinas, it's good enough to simply know what we mean by the term and to prove that some type of thing exists that lines up with that word, with that notion. And so we can simply provide what he refers to as a nominal definition. A strict definition names the nature of the thing. A nominal definition is, what do we mean by the word? And once we start our investigation, we can see, is there anything out there that lines up with that? And then we can try to figure out its nature in more detail. And he talks about that in text two on the handout. And his point is the same is the case when it comes to our investigation of God. Aquinas tells us, as regards God, we cannot know whether he exists unless we know about him what he is. But again, we can't know his nature in this lifetime because it's not like a woodpecker that we can examine or chemicals that we could analyze in a lab. We need to figure out what we mean by this word God. So we know we want to try to figure out what we mean by this word God, in, at least in some confused way, he says. Of course, not any old confused definition of God is going to do the trick. We need to have the right sort of confused understanding to provide us with a good enough, a sufficient nominal definition of the word God so that we're looking for the right thing when we try to prove his existence. And we should note, there are so many different conceptions of God. 
across time, across culture, and various religions. Idolaters of old worshiped statues. The Greeks were polytheists whose gods were considered corporeal beings. Christians are monotheists, but Trinitarian, leading fellow monotheistic Muslims to accuse them of being polytheists. Even atheists have their implicit preconceptions about what it is that they're rejecting. And those preconceptions may not line up with the understanding of those whom they're trying to refute. So to answer the question whether God exists, we need to be clear about what we mean by the word God. Only once we have a sufficient definition of that word, a sufficient nominal definition of this term, can we make a satisfactory attempt to prove that what it signifies, what the word God signifies, in fact exists. So that brings us to part two of my talk, what Aquinas is trying to prove. And I'm going to show you it's God considered as the first cause. Given Aquinas's position that we can't know what God is in his nature, any argument for God's existence that attempts to proceed from what God is in himself or whatever it is we might presuppose him to be, Aquinas would say that's problematic. So he rejects St. Anselm's famous so-called ontological argument. St. Anselm, if you're not familiar, had this thought experiment. He says, but well, by God, what I mean is something than which nothing greater can be thought. And so he's trying to give us something about the nature of God as this object of which nothing greater can be thought about. Similarly, the later scholastic philosopher after the time of Aquinas, Duns Scotus, his effort was to prove the existence of God considered as the infinite being. So he's trying to prove the existence of an infinite being. Aquinas would say both of these approaches and any approach that tries to prove God's existence saying this is in fact the nature of this being and I'm going to show that there's something out there, that's problematic. I want to be clear though, Aquinas certainly accepts the position that the two attributes I've identified turn out to be real attributes of God. God in fact is the thing of which if we understood him properly, nothing greater could be thought and it will turn out God is the one and only infinite being, but we don't know that at the outset. I should also note that as a philosopher, and Aquinas kind of wore many hats, he was a theologian by profession, but he was also a philosopher trying to figure out things through reason alone. As a philosopher, Aquinas doesn't think it's appropriate to turn to revelation for his nominal definition of God, even though he does accept on faith what revelation teaches about God. Well, why is that? Well, an argument for the existence of God that drew information from Revelation, from the Bible, would be a circular argument. It would be an argument trying to prove God's existence based on the authority of the word of God whose existence you're trying to prove. See how that's problematic. Instead, Aquinas's approach is to turn again to the scientific methodology laid out by the thinker that, Ar uh, that Aquinas calls the philosopher with a capital P, namely Aristotle. So again, he turns to the rules of logical reasoning laid out in Aristotle's posterior analytics. And there what we find is, according to Aristotle, scientific knowledge entails 
what he called demonstrative reasoning. What's that? It entails establishing the truth of some proposition, some position. How? Through argumentation, a method of deduction that entails valid syllogistic reasoning with premises in our argument that are themselves necessary, universal, and true. Now those premises can be drawn from experience and we can go out into the field and investigate things, but this is the standard. And Aristotle identified two sorts of logical demonstrations that he thought resulted in conclusions that can entail the certitude of knowledge. One kind of logical argumentation deduces not only the fact that something is the case, not only the fact that some position is true, but more importantly, why it is true. As the medievals termed it, this is, fancy Latin, a propter quid demonstration. And as Aquinas explains, and if you want to glance at it, it's text four, this sort of argument is a very strong kind of argument because it explains the truth of a proposition in terms of a causal explanation. The cause tells us why something is the way it is. Let's make this less abstract. I'll give you an example based on my earlier example of the whale nursing their young. Now I'm gonna present that line of reasoning formally to you. What we were reasoning before is that all mammals nurse their young all whales are mammals, and that allows us, if those first two propositions are true, to conclude that all whales are the sort of thing that nurse their young. Don't worry, I'm not gonna overload you with all the details of Aristotelian logic, but I am gonna point out this much, the term mammal here that I have highlighted in this argument is what logicians would call the middle term. And you can kind of see why, because it, provides the logical con connection between the subject term of the conclusion, whales, and the predicate term, nurse their young. And in this kind of argument, so-called propter quid demonstration, the middle term is a cause that accounts for why the conclusion is true. And if you're saying, well, how is that? Well, let's put this into more ordinary language. In response to the question, why is it that whales are the sort of thing that nurse their young? The answer would be because they are mammals. It's because of their mammalian nature that they behave in this sort of way. Their nature provides a causal account of this behavior. But sometimes, as we've seen, we don't know the nature of the subject that we're investigating. In those sort of cases, we can't offer a so-called propter quid demonstration about it, whether the subject that we're talking about is dark matter or God himself. Fortunately, Aristotle offers another way of proceeding in the investigation of those sorts of things. As Aquinas explains, when an effect is better known to us than its cause, we can proceed in the inverse manner of a propter quid argument. The propter quid, again, you're reasoning from cause to effect. This time we reason from an effect back to the cause, and this is called in Latin a quia demonstration. Consider the following example. This is my own, not Aquinas's. You've had a hard day at work or a hard day of studies and could really go for a refreshing beer, assuming you're over 21, 
21 or over. A friend of yours hands you a bottle of a label you've never heard of before, Odul's. You find it refreshing enough, but as you finish your second one, you notice that it isn't taking the edge off from your day. Suddenly, it dawns on you, this isn't really beer at all. Before you even look at the label to confirm your suspicions, you've implicitly reasoned as follows. All non-intoxicating beer is non-alcoholic. Odul's is non-intoxicating beer. Therefore, you infer Odul's is non-alcoholic. In this example, you would again be reasoning in a deductive manner, but this time the highlighted middle term <clears throat> is not a cause, but rather an effect that reveals the truth of the conclusion. As Aristotle indicates, with a quia demonstration such as this, we again have certitude that the conclusion is true. But this time, we nearly merely know that it is true, and not why, because we don't know the cause. So in my example, notice in the first example, when you reach the conclusion, you can say, well, why is it that whales nurse their young? Ah, because they're mammals. In the second example, you reach the conclusion, why is Odul's non-alcoholic? And you're left to wonder, why, for the love of God, would anyone brew non-alcoholic beer? Of course, there are explanations to tell us why. But my point is that these explanations are not brought out in the premises of the argument. And at this point, I'm sure you're wondering, how the heck is any of this relevant for our question of whether God exists? And the explanation is that Aquinas tells us, because from any effect, it's possible to demonstrate the existence of its proper cause. If the effect exists, the cause exists. And the reason is that effects depend upon their cause. Philosophers term what I just enunciated, the principle of causality, namely that every effect, precisely insofar as it is in an effect, in that role, it is clear that Oh, precisely insofar as it is effect, it depends upon its cause. So in that moment of dependence, it's clear that if something exists as an effect in some respect, not only does it have to have a cause, but the relevant cause has to exist. As an example of such an inference, consider that suddenly we hear a knocking at that door over there we know that that sound isn't sufficient to account for itself. So there must be a cause to account for it. If the knocking exists, we can reason in a quia manner, which is to say, from effect back to cause, that a door knocker, for want of a better term, must exist. But as the 1980s Australian pop band, I'm really aging myself here, Men at Works once sang, who can it be knocking at my door? That we can't figure out by simply reasoning from effect to cause. But even though the effect can't reveal who or even what, notice, might not even be a human being causing that sound, we know there must be a cause, and the cause must exist for the effect to exist. So it at least reveals, this line of reasoning at least reveals that there is a cause, that the cause exists. 
and whether physicists realize it today or not. It's this sort of quia line of reasoning that they're employing in investigations like the search for dark matter. From various astrophysical observations, such as gravitational effects that can't be explained by accepted theories of gravity, they infer that there must exist a cause, some sort of matter that can't be detected, at least presently, but that must exist. Do they know from these effects the nature, the whatness of dark matter yet? No. And the point is, Aquinas is contending in a similar way, even though we don't know God's nature, it's possible for us to reason in a queer manner, namely from effect back to cause, to the existence of a first cause, namely God. And this is the methodology that he employs in each of his famous five ways for proving God's existence. Each of those five ways, and in fact, every other argument, because those aren't the only arguments he offers for the existence of God, he offers others in other works, every one of his arguments starts with some given effect. Most notably, you may have heard of the prime mover argument. Whatever is in motion must be moved by another, that in turn might be moved by another, and for various reasons, he shows that there can't be an infinite series of movers, so there must be a first mover, and if it's first, it's unmoved, and this we would call God. So each of these arguments starts with some effect and reasons back to a first cause in some respect, relevant to that sort of effect that we started with. So you can see him discussing this methodology in text five on the handout, and I have a little table, a visual, illustrating how each of the five ways starts with a different effect to reason back to God as a first cause in a different respect. So to prove the existence, Aquinas' position is that if we prove the existence of a cause that is truly first and therefore uncaused, that's to prove the existence of something that transcends all other things and in that respect is unlike everything else. And here we find an answer to our earlier question regarding the definition of what God is. I've noted Aquinas thinks that it's impossible for us to discern the whatness of God's very nature. We don't know God's nature in this lifetime. Only the blessed in heaven see God as he is in himself. But we can at least know what we mean by the word that we're using. As Aquinas explains, whatever words we use to describe God those are taken from his effects. So we're naming God from his effects. For example, when we call him good, true, or wise. But to call him good, true, or wise is to presuppose that he exists. What about the word God? That's the word that we're working with here. and We're trying to say, how can we prove that God exists? Aquinas contends that what this name, God, should signify in our investigations is as follows. Something, something that's above all existing things, that is the principle, and here read the word principle, literally it means a source, here he means a cause. So something that transcends all things because it's the cause of all things, 
And in that sense, it's removed from all things, different from them in, a significant, in various significant ways. For this, Aquinas explains, is what those who use the name God intend to signify. Now you might say, whoa, not everybody means that. I think he's saying this is what they should intend to signify in their investigations. So it's the existence of this sort of being that Aquinas is trying to prove in each and every one of his arguments for the existence of God. So now that we have, I hope, a sense of what Aquinas is trying to do in any of his arguments. He's trying to prove the existence of a first cause of all things that is removed from all things and transcends all things. If we want to avoid misunderstanding his project, we need to get a better sense of that project by considering what he is not trying to do. Because there's a lot of misconceptions and you kind of need to know a little bit of inside baseball here if you're gonna get a clearer sense of what he's doing. So, part three, what Aquinas is not trying to prove, as I say, the singular God and his existence. As I'm indicating, people, people read the five ways. In fact, Aquinas' five ways are what brought me back to the faith. I'm a cradle Catholic, but uh, I sort of lapsed when I was in college, and then one day I was reading the five ways, and I said, my God, there's a God. But little did I know at the time, I didn't even understand what was going on in them. So that, that's grace working and that, that misunderstanding. Point I'm getting at here is, <clears throat> as you're getting a sense so far, as straightforward as his arguments might seem to be at first blush, there's in fact a lot going on behind the scenes. So people who are unfamiliar with his methodology can easily misread these proofs. On the one hand, that can lead sympathetic readers to agree or assent to a conclusion that in fact Aquinas himself never reaches. On the other hand, it could lead, say, the avowed atheist to reject an argument that Aquinas is in fact not making. There are two common mistakes that people make, and to be fair, understandably make, when reading Aquinas's arguments for the existence of God. One, mistake is their assumption that he intends to prove the existence of God. The other is the assumption that he intends to prove the existence of God. That was very cryptic, right? Let me put that less cryptically. One error is mistaking what the argument is about, the subject of the argument. These arguments about God are not about God in the way people think they are about God. The other mistake is to think that these arguments are proving a thing, existence, that God has, what's being attributed to God. What's going on here? Let's walk through these point by point. And let's go with the first one first. When I say that it's a mistake to read Aquinas as attempting to prove the existence of God in arguments, in arguments like his five ways, what I have in mind is the common understandable assumption that Aquinas is trying to prove the existence of some individual 
who goes by the name God, as though that's a proper name, like Greg Doolin or Becca Hassenbein. Proper names signify an individual being as an individual being. And notice, they cannot be said of any other individual, or we have a pure equivocation. There could happen to be someone else named Becca Hassenbein, but then the words are meaning something else. They're meaning that person, or another Greg Doolin, and they're meaning that person. Or we can use names metaphorically, like when we say if someone's smart, he's a real Einstein, right? But we don't mean he's literally the man Albert Einstein, we mean he's like Albert Einstein. Aquinas is clear that this name, this word, God, is not a proper name like Greg or Becca. It's not the name of this being taken as an individual. Well, what is? The closest thing he suggests at one point is the tetragrammaton used by the Hebrews to signify Yahweh, which Aquinas seems to have thought was an a way of writing God's name that God revealed, but it's unpronounceable. So it might be God's proper name, but we can't even pronounce it. We use this word God, but what are we saying? Well, Aquinas tells us that the name God is in fact, fancy philosophical jargon, an appellative name. Put that in ordinary English, or at least for grammarians, what we would call a common noun. So not a name like Greg or Becca, but a name like human or animal that can be said of more than one thing. Aquinas explains that the name God is like other common nouns in that it's intended to signify a kind of nature. So human, when I call you a human, I'm saying you're the sort of thing that has a human nature. And when I say Fido the dog is an animal, he's the sort of thing that has an animal nature. And what Aquinas is claiming is that the name God or a God is not the proper name of an individual, but it's intended to signify the sort of thing that has a divine nature. Granted, we don't know that nature, but it's still coherent to give a name for the nature that we don't know. We're saying maybe there's a sort of thing that has a divine nature. Just as it's coherent for physicists to give the name dark matter to dark matter. And it's, this is the part that can be surprising and even maybe troubling. Well, God's not his proper name, but Aquinas clarifies to illustrate that this is not a proper name, but a common name. It's precisely because the name God is a common noun that for Christians, at least, the name God can be commonly said of each of the three persons of the Trinity in a meaningful way. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. Each is a haver of divinity. Now it turns out for the believer, that's the same nature that each is having. But there's three in one instead of all three and each. Moreover, Aquinas explains, it's because the name God is a common name that polytheists can speak of gods in the plural. Now, Aquinas says they can do that, but it's according to a mistaken opinion because they don't have a proper understanding of divine nature. But still, it's because they can use that name, God, even in a mistaken way, that the monotheist can meaningfully enter into conversation with the polytheist 
to point out the error of his or her way and say, no, don't you realize there can be and is only one God, properly speaking. Okay, I'm giving you a lot of linguistic semantic considerations here of what the term God signifies. What this reveals is that when Aquinas tries to prove the existence of God in his five ways or any other argument, he's not immediately trying to conclude to the existence of the one true God, at least not immediately. And this reading is further confirmed by a consideration of the logical methodology in these arguments. Following Aristotle, Aquinas holds that you know, scientific knowledge is not of individual things. Scientific knowledge concerns natures, kinds of things, what he terms universals. So there's no demonstration or proof of individuals. For that reason, you can't say to somebody, give me a demonstration or a proof that Becca Hassenbein exists. The best you can do is point and say, there she is. Right? You can't give a logical argument to prove that she exists. By contrast, we can offer demonstrations that a certain kind of thing exists, such as humans. Namely, we can do that by proving that there is something out there in reality that has a human nature. The point I'm getting at is that unlike a Duns Scotus, who later attempts to offer a single knockdown argument for the existence of the individual one true God, Aquinas is taking a different approach in his arguments, following his Aristotelian methodology. Namely, he tries to prove instead that there exists out there in reality some being that has the divine nature, that has a divine nature, some haver of divinity. For this reason, if you look at his five ways, what we find is that none of them explicitly concludes to the existence of one and only one God. Now, to be clear, as I've already indicated, Aquinas does hold that in actual fact, there can be only one haver of divinity, properly speaking. But that fact isn't explicitly signified by the common name God. And what's interesting is for Aquinas, the unicity of God, that there's only one, is a conclusion that can be reached only after the existence of a God, a divine being, has been proven, namely a sort of corollary. A corollary is a conclusion that follows from a conclusion. And it's noteworthy that in the first part of his famous Summa Theologiae, you can glance later on or now at figure six, short table of contents of the first 25 or 26 questions. It's in question two. So the division there isn't in terms of chapters, but what they call questions, but they're like chapters. In question two is when Aquinas addresses whether God exists. It's not until question 11 that Aquinas establishes God's unicity. Nine questions after the article in which he presents his arguments for the existence of God. So what I'm driving at is the immediate conclusion of these arguments to the uh, uh, isn't to the existence of an individual entity whose proper name is God. Rather, what he's trying to show is there exists at least one being 
with a kind of nature, namely divine, that corresponds to what Aquinas thinks the name God signifies. What is that? Well, we've already seen something whose nature is such that it can be, and in fact is, a first uncaused cause that is so removed from its effects that it transcends them. With that said, for these arguments to fully cash out as genuine proofs of God's existence, they need to conclude to the sort of first cause where it'll turn out that in fact there can be only one of them. So it'll turn out there can be only one first mover of all things in motion, one first efficient cause maker, one first necessary being, and so forth and so on. And that's what Aquinas proceeds to show in the questions and articles that follow the five ways. Now you'll also recall that I made the provocative and cryptic claim that none of Aquinas' arguments conclude to the existence of God. This time, emphasis on the word existence. What the heck do I mean by that? Well, here, once again, we need to step back to consider what it is precisely that's being proven in a logical demonstration. Properly speaking, it's neither a thing nor any of its attributes, any of its features that's being proven in a proof. To illustrate, let's return to my example syllogism about whales. You wouldn't say to somebody, prove whales. First would say, prove what about whales? Again, you wouldn't say, prove nurse their young. Rather, what we would say is, prove that whales nurse their young. What I'm getting at is that in a logical argument known as a demonstration, which what is properly sought is evidence that some statement, some proposition is true. Some proposition that asserts something about some subject. And the same is the case for any demonstration we would attempt to make about God. Whatever it is that Aquinas tries to prove about him, it's some statement concerning God. For example, that the statement, God is good, is true. That the statement, God is infinite, is true. God is wise, etc. And similarly, regarding his existence, what Aquinas attempts to prove is the truth of this statement, that God exists. So we're not proving God's existence, we're proving that this statement is true. God exists. So we find that the conventional translation of Aquinas' words leading up to the famous five ways tends to be inaccurate because in the Benziger edition that English readers commonly turn to, we find the translation, the existence of God is proven in five ways. It's like saying this feature of God. But Aquinas doesn't use the words existence of God. The Latin, if you know any Latin, would be existentia dei, Rather, what Aquinas, what the Latin says is deum esse, and if you want to look at that, you can see it in text five. Don't panic, I'm not going to bore you with a Latin lesson, other than to clarify that this phrase, deum esse, that God is. This is an instance of a grammatical construction used to indicate an indirect statement, like this indirect statement I have there. Prove that. Prove what? God exists. Prove that this statement is true. 
To be even more precise, I should note that Aquinas, in fact, doesn't use the verb to exist at all, which in Latin, again, is existere. We get our English word exist from the Latin existere. Instead, he uses the verb esse, which is better translated if we want to be literal with the infinitive to be. So with that in mind, the lines leading into the five ways most accurately reads, it can be proven in five ways that God is. Now, again, what the heck is going on here? You might well think at this point that Doolin is just being a finicky translator, making a distinction without a difference. Surely the verb to be is a synonym of the verb to exist. Think of Hamlet, who famously asked about his own existence, to be or not to be? That is the question. He's asking, should I continue to exist or not? Or Monsieur Descartes, who famously said, I think, therefore I am. Notice we've got the infinitive version of to be in the first question, uh, and I am, first person, singular, in the second, present tense. Surely they're both talking about existence. But we need to be careful here because for both the English verb to be and the Latin essay that it translates, the existence of the thing isn't always what's signified by the word. In other words, to be and is don't always mean exist. Consider the following example. You meet someone who, having just learned about the Danish prince, asks you, oh yeah, I heard about this Hamlet guy. When did Hamlet live? And knowing your Shakespeare, you reply, oh, don't you know? Hamlet is a fictional character. And hearing this news, the person might react with surprise, saying, is he? Well, the person would be a dunderhead to be saying, does he exist? after you've just told him that he's fictional. What does he mean by that question? Notice, you will reply, likely without a beat, he is, and by that, again, you don't mean he exists. So what's going on here? Well, Aquinas offers some clarification. On a number of occasions, he tells us that the verb to be can be said in different ways. One way is that existential sense of to be used by both Hamlet and Descartes, meaning to exist. But another way that it's commonly used is as what both grammarians and logicians call a copula. When various forms of the verb to be join together a subject and predicate in a proposition, and that's how the verb to be is used in this statement, Hamlet is a fictional character. Is isn't signifying that Hamlet exists. What it's doing is it's combining the notion of Hamlet and fictional character, it's kind of like a plus sign. And it indicates that these notions rightly belong together. And Aquinas tells us that what the copulative use of the word is signifies is that what we've asserted is true. It's true to put these notions together, namely Hamlet and fictional character. And similarly, in your reply to the question, is Hamlet fictional? When you answer he is, you don't mean he exists. What you mean is what I just said is true. He's fictional.
So why am I going through all this when considering Aquinas' arguments for the existence of God? Surely when he says that he intends to prove that God is, the is indicates existence, right? But there's a problem here. It's going to turn out that the God whose existence Aquinas is trying to prove is a being whose nature is identical with his very existence. In short, in God, his whatness is his isness. His nature is his existence. Everything else merely has existence. God is his existence. And to borrow a theological note from Revelation in scripture, hence when Moses asked God, what should I tell the Israelites is your name? And he says, not I am this or I am that, Harry or Bob, Jane or Sue, but I am. So what's the concern? Well, an objector says, wait a second, you're claiming you can prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that God exists? Then if you're doing that, it seems as though you're claiming you can go know his nature. But in this lifetime, we can't know what God is. If you can prove that he exists, it seems like you're claiming you know what he is. And so the argument goes, it seems impossible to know by means of the certitude of a demonstration that God is. And in response to this concern, Aquinas grants, he says, you know what? You're right. We can neither prove nor know the is of God that is his very existence. Again, not in this lifetime. But he reassures us when we are attempting to prove the truth of this statement, God is, we aren't employing that existential sense of the word. Rather, Aquinas contends it's the copulative sense, where is joins together a subject and predicate, where is means true. Okay, I know, this is all rather abstract, somewhat obscure. So let me try to lay out the implication in simpler terms. What Aquinas is reminding us is that we don't have a firsthand experience of God or of his existence, unlike your experience of me right now. You can rightfully judge of me that Greg Doolin exists. And moreover, that Doolin exists as a human. Here we are asserting something experienced about an individual. But remember, I noted you can't offer a philosophical proof or demonstration that an individual such as me exists. By contrast, as I've also noted, Aquinas holds that it's possible to prove that something with a given kind of nature exists. How? Again, by reasoning from effect back to cause in that so-called quia line of argument. Consider my earlier example of the ivory-billed woodpecker, which currently isn't observed. If you were walking through the Florida Everglades and you were presented with sufficient evidence of the unique effects of such a woodpecker that you did observe, for example, their distinctive bird call and recently built distinctive nests, then you would be justified in inferring their existence. If only they can cause it, if those effects exist, the cause exists. But notice you wouldn't conclude that this individual woodpecker exists, for example, Woody the woodpecker, but rather that there exists some bird out there that is an ivory-billed woodpecker. You would know of their existence, but not directly. 
The conclusion that an ivory-billed woodpecker exists, in fact, is really a kind of shorthand referencing of the truth of the following proposition. Something, something out there, is an ivory-billed woodpecker. And in this proposition, as well, the is doesn't signify that a given individual exists, but rather what it signifies is that it's true to combine the notion of something, what Aquinas would term a vague individual, that we haven't narrowed down. The notion of something and the notion of ivory-billed woodpecker rightfully go together. So what this proposition is really asserting is that something out there has the nature of an ivory-billed woodpecker, and of course, for something to have that nature, it must exist. But notice, existence isn't directly asserted. It's only implied as the truth of the proposition presupposes the fact that such a bird exists. So it's not asserting that they exist, it's presuming that they exist. Why, how? For something to have that nature. And we find Aquinas indicating something similar occurring when we try to prove God's existence. Recall his position that the word God isn't a proper name like Greg Doolin or Becca Hassenbein, but the name instead, God is a name of a kind of nature, namely of the divine nature. And what's that? Well, as we've seen, we don't know, but we can signify what we mean by the name, namely that a haver of divine nature is a thing that is a first uncaused transcendent cause. So whereas you can rightly assert of me that Doolin is, meaning I exist, because you have firsthand knowledge of it, my existence, Aquinas indicates that by contrast, when we say that God exists, we are really instead properly asserting something out there is a God. In short, what we are signifying is that it's true that something in reality has a divine nature. And the truth of that statement, of course, presupposes that that something exists. But again, its existence is implied, not directly asserted. We're saying something has this nature. For the something to have the nature, something must exist. And we are inferring that from the effects of that something. So we can sum up the line of reasoning for each of Aquinas' five ways and any other argument he offers for the existence of God by showing what I call the, the meta-argument. You can see that on figure in figure seven, but I'll put it on the screen. Namely, he's telling us a first uncaused transcendent cause, that's what we mean by the term God. Something is, indeed, a first uncaused transcendent cause. Therefore, something out there is the sort of thing we call a god. Notice that the first premise here, what logicians call the major premise, provides that nominal definition of the word god that Aquinas gives us. The second premise is what Aquinas, in each of his five ways and other arguments is trying to prove. Namely, that there is some first cause of motion 
or some maximal being that is the cause of all other beings. Regardless of the specifics, if it is a first uncaused transcendent cause whose existence has been proven, we can then verify that second premise. And Aquinas contends in that respect, what has been proven is that there is indeed a God. I'm getting near the end, don't worry. For the person of faith, the approach that I have described might seem kind of disappointing if you were expecting a proof that immediately arrives at the one true God of faith. In fact, this language of a God might seem particularly troubling as though implying that there is or could be more than one. But the believer shouldn't be thrown either by Aquinas's language or his reasoning. Recall again that even though Aquinas is simply attempting to prove the existence of something with a given kind of nature, in fact, it's gonna turn out that there can be only one such thing and he can go on to prove that with further argumentation. There can be only one first uncaused transcendent cause. As a parallel, consider what occurs in the Catholic Church with the election of a new pope. There's a period during every papal conclave when the Catholic faithful do not know yet whether there is a pope or not. And then finally, from the central balcony of St. Peter's Basilica, it's announced to the world, Habemos Papam, we have a Pope. At that point, the world knows that someone is the Pope, but we don't know who. We don't know his proper name. That's because like the name God, the name Pope is a common name. So the pronouncement, we have a Pope, doesn't assert something about an individual as such, Benedict or Francis, but it still implies something about an individual, because as it turns out, there can be only one pope. And what I'm saying is we find something similar occurring at the conclusion of each of Aquinas' arguments for the existence of God. We now know that Aquinas claims that something is a God because we've proven, he thinks, that there must be something that is a first cause. And as with the pope, there can be only one of it. So does this God of philosophical demonstration line up with the one true God of faith? Well, Aquinas is going to ultimately say yes, but notice that it doesn't belong to the philosopher as such to tell the believer that this being is in fact the God in whom he or she believes. Because the philosopher considered simply as a philosopher doesn't speak from the vantage point of faith. So in the end, it belongs to the believer to affirm whether any philosophical demonstration, Aquinas's or otherwise, has concluded to the divinity that he or she believes in. And if so, pronounced to his or her satisfaction, we have a God. Thank you. You mentioned earlier about something um, that the translations are sometimes inaccurate. Right. Any certain um, there's an edition that's come out recently that sort of tweaked the Menziger edition that I mentioned, and it's on the, uh, at the slide that I had at the beginning where it showed a picture. Uh, I'm not sure what the press is. I mean, given that's my area of specialty, I'm not happy with any of the translations. There's a, actually a really good one that's available for free uh, online. 
by uh, Fred Fredoso, who teaches at uh, the University of Notre Dame. Uh, so if you look up F-R-E, I think it's double D-O-S-O, um, and if you look him up, you can find it there. Um, and again, for the average reader, it, in a way, it doesn't make a difference, but if you want to really get a full sense, like for what we were bringing up, it, you know, you have to see what exactly was he saying and what's lost in the translation if it's not translated accurately. Okay. Um, okay, so I just wanted to like uh, go through what you were essentially trying to say like, overall towards the end there. Um, so you're saying that the philosopher Aquinas does not come to the conclusion that the Catholic God exists, but that God is in a first cause that is exists. However, the theologian or religious Aquinas does. Right, so what, I, what I'm trying to say is that the philosopher can give us this account of a divine being, but the believer believes that and more, right? At least if you're a Christian, you believe in the tri triune nature of God, the Trinity, and you believe that the second person became incarnate at a certain point in time and so forth. And uh, the philosopher cannot prove that, right? And so we get more information from Revelation. So from the vantage point of the philosopher, he can't say, hey, what I've just proven, that's what you believe. I, I think it's fair to say, I think it lines up, you know, but it's really for the believer to step back and say, hey, you succeeded in proving the basics of what I believe, namely that there's a divine being, that it's the first cause of all things, Clearly, there's more that needs to be unpacked, and we can only unpack that through revelation and, and consequently theological reasoning. Um, so that that's, does that go to your question, though? Um, pretty much, yeah. So your, your answer to my question in short was yes. Um, but I want to follow up with that with another one, which is essentially if the philosopher Aquinas, like strictly the philosopher, so right. If that one did not come to the conclusion that the Catholic God exists, then why is he considered a saint by the Catholic Church overall? Uh, I think I'm missing your question. So you're saying if he doesn't think that... Okay, so if the philosopher points, if he does not come to the conclusion that the Catholic God exists, just that there is such thing that is a God that exists, but the religious one that already assumes... Uh, you know how in the beginning we were talking about the circular nature? Okay. So if that side of Aquinas did, then why is it that Aquinas as a whole is teaching this word such a oh, church? Okay, I, I think I'm probably maybe inadvertently underselling what he's doing. Because what all I'm trying to say is, um, if someone were doing pure philosophy and weren't a believer, he can't make claims on what the believer believes. But the believer has this vantage point to say, yeah, what you've done through science or philosophy lines up with the truth of what has been revealed here. So um, it's not to say that there's lack of value to what was done. So remember, he's following this Augustinian approach of faith-seeking understanding. I already believe, and I want to strengthen my beliefs by confirmation through understanding. And here we can show by pure philosophical reasoning that the basics of what God is that there is such a being, that what we believe, that lines up, and that can be established. So uh, it's not as though something is lacking in this project that would make him to cast some kind of doubt on whether he should be a saint. 
Um, and his, his cause for sainthood comes from, you know, it, well, first off, he um, had mystical experiences too. You know, he was a profound teacher of theology that influenced the, the church. He's the common doctor, universal doctor of the church, teacher of the church, doctor meaning teacher. So uh, there are a lot of important roles in the life of faith and his exemplary life as a virtuous person and believer that are the reasons why he was canonized. Um, not, I don't think anybody would be canonized simply because they were a good philosopher. Um, is, that, is, is that on point to what you're asking? Because I may have missed it. That wasn't exactly like answering my question, but that does kind of make it a moot point. So you're saying that he was made a saint because of the things he did outside of his work. If his work as a philosopher was factored in, it's because it contributed to his bigger theological project. Okay, because, yeah, yeah. so the question I was asking was in relation to, like, how his um, philosophies, like that side of him, like how that was taken into consideration and how that ultimately, like, uh, played into how he became a saint. Because I know that wasn't the only reason. But yeah. the fact that his proof more so doesn't exactly align with the church, like it could also be used to argue against the church's beliefs, is what I'm saying. Well, that I don't see. How could it be used to argue against the church's beliefs? So the philosopher stuff that you were talking about, like with him proving that if like, a, like a God exists, like if a single God existed, something like that, um, or if the nature existed, um, then you wouldn't be able, like you can't prove that he is specifically the Catholic God, just that he existed as like a first cause, and like we don't really know what it is, and it's impossible for us to comprehend. Yeah, we can't know, but as I indicated in that little table of contents, hopefully we'll at least visually make clear, there's a lot more. Once the existence of this being, of this divine being has been established, we can go on to prove, yes, that there's only one of it, that it's an infinite being, that the being is good, more to the point, it's pure goodness, uh, that it is truth itself, that it is intelligent, that it, Aquinas thinks we can even prove philosophically that this being created the world, which is to say made it and out of nothing, uh, and that it did so freely, and that it did so uh, knowingly, and uh, that it knows you and you know everything down to every hair on your head, uh, and so he has argumentation along those lines that you know really, yes, the 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 non-Catholic could look at that and say, hey, that really lines up with what you guys believe. But my point is, it's not the place of the person who's not the believer to say you need to say that that lines up. It's the place of the believer to say, oh my gosh, that really lines up. And that, that's what I'm trying to bring out okay, by those sense. last observations. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Because, yes, all we have from my presentation is we've arrived at there must be a divine being. But as I say, we can go on philosophically and improve a heck of a lot more, uh, including all those attributes listed on that. Y'all 
talk about God's like attributes and things that he is so that we have to have faith. Uh, so Aquinas would say um, there are some points that, you know, the, the clear ones, the Trinitarian nature, there's no way of proving that there could be a being that has uh, one nature with one existence, and yet there are three persons, all with one nature and one existence, and yet they're really distinct. They're distinct relationally. And then we get into the mystery of the Trinitarian you know, uh, teaching. What he will say is that, um, this isn't exactly on point to what you're asking, but it's worth bringing out. The you cannot philosophically prove these theological points, but to the objector who will say, that's incoherent, right? You're, you're contradicting yourself. You can respond to all of those arguments philosophically to show that it's not incoherent. You know, there's an early church father who said, I believe because it's absurd. And Aquinas say, no, it's not absurd. Absurd would mean it's a contradictory, incoherent notion. And he's saying, no, there are mysteries that we can't fully comprehend, and we can't prove that they're true, but any argument against the Trinity to show that it's supposedly problematic, he would say, we can refute that philosophically. And that argument doesn't stand. Um, so I bring that up just to say, there. so how do we know it, it's something that there's just be no way? Now, there were some Christian thinkers who, um, uh, notably the earlier medieval philosopher uh, Abelard, uh, you may have heard of Abelard and Eloise, and they had a love affair and so forth, but maybe not. Uh, he, uh, he seems to have thought you could prove the triune nature of God. But that's a rare... Position. So it would be something where they just reason can't prove that. Um, so then the question is, well, what can we prove? And so for Aquinas, the dividing line is here. Anything that we're going to be able to prove about God, maybe this is the testing point. Everything we're reasoning about God and getting from his effects. The methodology to prove his existence, or the existence of this kind of being, is your reason from the effects, back to the cause. Then we can follow another path to start to identify features of him. So that's the way of causality that I described. Say he's the first efficient cause, the first maker, the first mover, this and that. And we're naming him as he stands in relation to his effects, but really we're naming him from like the knocker at the door, right? It doesn't tell us anything about the person in himself. Then we can follow a way of negation and say, ah, if he, what he's not. So it's sort of kind of like narrowing it down. It's sort of like if you were adopted, you're trying to find out who your parents are, and you learn, well, they're not from Asia, and they're not from Africa, and they're in the United States. So you're narrowing down the field. You still don't know who they are, but it's not this person, it's not that, and we're getting a narrower, narrower sense. And so Aquinas is saying, similarly, we can start to negate of God. If he's first, he's uncaused, right? Because he's the first cause. And if he's uncaused, there's no compositions in him, uh, he doesn't have material parts. He's got to be immaterial, not material. And if he's not material, he's not undergoing changes the way physical things are. And if that's the case, he's not in time. Da -da -da -da. So you get all these negations, and it kind of clarifies further, even though it's still not saying what he is in himself. And then Aquinas says, we can go farther and say affirmative things about God. Why? How? They're about his nature, even though we don't know his nature. Why? Because every 
every maker makes things like itself to a degree. And so any positive perfection in creatures like goodness, uh, intelligence, wisdom, so forth, if the effect has it, the cause must have it in a higher way. So, you know, Socrates might be wise. Uh, God is the infinite, simple being. He doesn't just have wisdom. He is wisdom itself. He is good, but more than point, he's goodness itself. You know, so I like to say to students, you know, there are a lot of good things. Uh, my mom, the flag, apple pie, and oh yeah, God. <laughs> well, no, he's not yet one more good thing. He is the goodness by which all good things are good. And so notice, you, we're still naming him from his effects, though, right? And we're saying, if the effect has it in this way, the cause must have it, this infinite, simple being, uh, in a higher way, in a transcendent way, unlikely effect. But I still don't know that way as it is in this effect. Now, that was a long-winded explanation to get to your point. So the dividing line is a doctrine like the Trinity, that's as he is in himself. And we can't figure that out through reasoning from effects back to cause. Is there a way you could maybe say, looking at his attributes, is that a way for like, could you say that that's like how someone could like trust, like that, okay, so like I can trust that like God is good, therefore I can trust that what he says about himself, if I think that that's the Catholic version of God, that can, is that a way you can do that? Yeah, that's, that's the point is, the Catholic understanding of faith is not that it's an irrational belief of faith. It's reasonable to believe what the church teaches, right? And so, it's, you know, so uh, one can just be a cradle believer and believe that there's a God. One could start out as an atheist and then look at a proof of the existence of God and say, wow, there really is a first uncaused cause that makes everything, that's pure goodness. And that might push the person to start to look at various faith traditions and bring the person to the Catholic faith. Um, you know, and so there, there, it, it's not that one can prove philosophically that you know, the faith is true, but one can say, hey, it's reasonable to believe that and then accept on faith what's reasonable and not irrational. We have time for one more question. Okay. So I am struggling a little bit with the, the word first in the meta argument. Okay. And um, because there's this idea to be first, you have to think in terms of linear time. Yeah. You know, and I believe that Aquinas based that argument on the idea that we can't have infinite progress. That at Great. some point you have a beginning. Yeah. But God is eternal yeah. and always was, and therefore can infinitely regress. Can you address that? Yeah, yeah, great question. Um, what's what's the first point uh, is? I know, like there, there there are easy common misreadings of his arguments, and one of the common misreadings is uh, when he argues against an infinite regress. There's got to be a first. He's not arguing back to like the Big Bang or a first moment in time. In fact, he had the unusual position that, you know, Aristotle, when it referenced, Aristotle thought, you know, uh, whatever is moved comes from something else, and he thought the world was eternal. And Aquinas says, no, Aristotle's argument there is only reasoning based upon physical motions. 
The faith teaches that there's a first moment in time. Metaphysics, the science of being itself, Aquinas thinks it's open to either, because as it's going to turn out, the notion of a universe with no first moment in time is a coherent notion. And the notion of a universe with a first moment in time is a coherent notion as well. So how does, why would we believe one or the other? That's a matter of faith. And so that would be another article of faith, you know, example. Like, because Aquinas thinks uh, both of those models that I described, the universe with a first moment in time or no first moment in time, the key thing is, even philosophically, there's got to be some cause on which either of those universes would be dependent. And so even if the world were eternal in time, it would still depend on God. God would be outside of time, you know, from his atemporal vantage point, creating all moments of time in the past and the future and so forth. So uh, how do we read the infinite regress argument or against an infinite regress? It's not a temporal thing of first this, then later on that, and then later on that. The example I give is, uh, I don't have, there are not many props you can use to teach metaphysics, but one of the props that I use is I've got those jumbo paper clips. Have you ever seen those? And I make a big paper clip chain and you know, you hang the pen off of the bottom one, and you say, how is the pen hanging there? Again, effects depend on cause. It's not sufficient to be up there by itself. The clip above it is holding that pen. But that's not a sufficient cause. How does that clip act as a cause? The one above it. How's that one? The one above it. Notice, every cause in that chain is acting as a cause simultaneously. And in a way, they're one big cause. And so the argument is, if you said, well, maybe that paperclip chain goes on infinitely into the sky, and infinitude is really powerful, and of course you say, no, because what are we seeing? Each of these causes is insufficient. If that simultaneous series of causes, paperclips, went on infinitely, it'd be infinitely insufficient. So it can't be infinite. It's got to be finite. Well, if it's finite, you come to an end, really, a beginning and there's something at the start that's accounting for everything. So first, you're right, our minds tend to go to the temporal sense of first, but he doesn't mean first in time. He means first in more in the sense of most fundamental, like the foundation, you get a whole skyscraper and every floor is holding up the one, uh, you know, above it, but it's ultimately the foundation, and that's first in the relevant sense of most fundamental. Now. Does that help? Yes, that's much clearer than when I was listening to 44. Yeah. I'm neither a monk, and I try not to be too angry. Um, that concludes our talk. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Um, we have our reading group on Wednesdays at 5. And if you're interested, you can email us. Um, make sure you guys sign up in the back. There's waters and some merch if y'all want to grab stuff, pens, papers. And that is it. Thanks for coming.